Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. Sometimes the unexpected turns out to maybe is the thing that is what God has for you. One of the things that drew me to the Living Church is that this is a vocation of preservation, of preserving something that is really singular and important um, in the life of the Episcopal Church. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Welcome, podcast listeners, to a special coffee hour edition of the podcast. As many of you already know, we have a new executive director and publisher over here at the Living Church, the Reverend Dr. Matthew Olver. He and I took some time to talk about how he got to TLC. I'll tell you more about that in just a second. But first, let me tell you that Matthew is the executive director and publisher of the Living Church. He is also an Episcopal priest who served widely in the Episcopal Church in all kinds of roles. And like the eighth editor of TLC, H. Boone Porter, he's also a liturgical scholar. He taught at Neshota House Theological Seminary for nearly a decade, and he's currently also an assistant priest at Zion Episcopal Church in Okanomawak, Wisconsin. I worked really hard on pronouncing that, so if I did it wrong, I'm sure someone will tell me. Please do. If you keep listening to this podcast episode, you will hear the following. How our new executive director stays caffeinated. Very important. The recognizability of the church across the ages and why preservation is a dynamic thing. Why a seminary professor would want to run a magazine in the first place. Why we have a blog and what it's doing. What he likes about living church events. And why when tourists are snapping photos of church architecture, Matthew stands there reading Augustine. We'll travel from Matthew's office in Milwaukee to Wheaton to Rome, to Ravenna, to Oklahoma City, and back. All without getting out of our chairs, believe it or not. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Are you a coffee yeah. person? Yes, I am very much a coffee person. Okay, priest, do... coffee snob? I don't know why this yeah. is a Anglican priest thing, like a lot of coffee snobs among Anglican priests. Yes, I, f I mean, I'm embarrassed by it. I mean, the first time we went to England as a family, we got back and my wife came to be like two weeks later and she was like, do you want to know how much we spent on coffee? 
And I was like, I don't think I do. Are you moving this giant espresso machine into your new office at the Living Church headquarters? Yes, because the Living Church headquarters for me is the same office that I've been in for the last so, nine years. <laughs> this is a joke. This is a joke, everyone, because there is, we've been a remote staff since before the pandemic. So our headquarters, it's like the kingdom. The headquarters of the Living Church is within us, sort of, <laughs> within exactly. and among us. One of the main texts that I often teach when teaching about the Eucharist, you know, is Malachi 111. You know, my name will be great among the nations. Irenaeus and Justin both quote this as like, obviously, you know, the Lord was talking about the Eucharist here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, now that we've compared the living church to both the kingdom of God and possibly the gifts of God for the people of God, Matthew, you are the new executive director and thank you for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. I, I feel like, you know, given that I have some sort of real relationship with this podcast, I needed to say yes. So it's good to be here. You know, first, I think we just briefly need to give some major props to Mark Michael, who is who is the current editor in chief, and who was interim director for over a year. And just the fantastic job that he did keeping the ship steady. And by keeping the ship steady, I mean, like, taking some big initiatives, doing major work on the budget, fundraising like gangbusters, navigating enormous transition, like so much behind the scenes that people Absolutely. Just don't know. Nope. It'd be hard to know unless you were in the engine room, but Mark did an incredible job, is doing an incredible job, and is so deeply committed and seriously one of the most gifted people. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Mark's amazing. And he shoveled he some coal. As an interim executive director, you will shovel some coal and do some work. And Mark certainly has. <laughs> yeah. We're mixing a lot of metaphors here. I mean, I guess engine room and coal, I guess <laughs> yeah, that could right. be the same. Yes, I was thinking good. of an old ship like the Titanic, except without the sinking part. <laughs> the HMS Living Church. I want to ask you actually some similar questions that I asked Christopher Wells. We did a podcast episode a little over a year ago, that was an exit interview with him going out as executive director. And so I wanted to ask you some similar questions coming in. You've been a friend of the Living Church for many years. How would you characterize the changes in the Living Church's ministry in a nutshell over the past several years? I mean, one way to characterize it is to say that it has um, widened and expanded. So, I mean, historically, The Living Church was a magazine. I think one way to think about The Living Church now is that it's a media company <laughs> with a very specific mission. It's a media company that produces digital and print media, though we do have a few things that sort of sit outside that. And actually, some of those things are things that you oversee. So conferences or pilgrimages, but most of it is we're producing lots of content. One of them is the thing we're doing right now. We are thinking really seriously about what our mission is and thus expanding. And I, I don't think that that has meant that our flagship publication has become less important, but the magazine is one of two, you know, principal ways that we, we publish news. So. Yeah. 
Okay, I realize that I sort of put the cart before the horse a little bit because yeah. how I often start with people when I have them on is ask them how they got to where they are. And there's been a couple of articles about you, about your coming into the Living Church that have been in the magazine, that have been in our online news. And so I want to tie this to what I've just asked you. What have you seen in your journey coming to be the executive director of the Living Church. So a little bit of that journey and along the way, in the things that you've been doing before, how have you experienced the Living Church? What has your relationship been like to the Living Church? What, what have you seen as a reader and as a friend of the Living Church in your own journey leading up to this point? Yeah. Okay, that's a big question. So you'll probably need to like stop me at some point because I'll just keep going. It but, is a big question. That is my specialty yeah, to ask about yeah. five questions in one question. I don't know if you ever listened to Smartless, but they're always making fun of Jason Bateman for asking really long questions and multi-part questions that the guests can never fully answer. So, <laughs> so you just got compared to Jason Bateman. So there we are. I've been waiting for um, that moment. You have. I know. I know. So... I was raised as an Anabaptist in the Brethren in Christ tradition in the, the actual church, local church that my mom was raised in. My grandfather was a Mennonite. I mean, I had a friend growing up who was also a Mennonite who, who grew pot. So that's, that's like a different Mennonite. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, God made plants. It's awesome. And there I was like, that doesn't seem very Mennonite of you, but whatever. So... That's the tradition I was raised. It was a kind of evangelicalism, but very not reformed. So when I got to Wheaton College, mm -hmm. I met all these reformed Protestants who had sacraments and baptized babies and things. And I was totally confused. Like, I don't think I'd even heard of Christianity today, which I think of as kind of middle of the road, slow pitch over the plate kind of evangelicalism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was in going to Wheaton. Becoming an Anglican was in some ways my, that was my sowing my wild oats, you know, <laughs> that was my rebellion. Oh, wow. So instead of like partying a lot or any, I, I became an Anglican, you know. My second week at Wheaton, my RA invited me to his Anglican church and I stayed and I was completely hooked. The Bible being central, scripture being central seemed really obvious to me. Mark Knoll was one of my teachers at Wheaton. You know, he has written a lot about evangelicalism in America. I mean, I couldn't have described the marks of evangelicalism, you know, at that point, but I knew about the Bible. And the fact was there was way more Bible scripture being read. It was done with a kind of reverence that really struck me. And then it was preached seriously. And at least the way my memory is of it, it was as if people were sort of leaning forward, waiting for the Eucharist. Mm, mm -hmm. So it was like all the good things of evangelicalism, but even more, plus the Eucharist. And I had, I had always, not always, but I, I think in high school had started to develop some sort of Eucharistic piety, even within my Anabaptist context. We had a pastor who would come and we would have a love feast, which is what they called it, like once a quarter, and people would make bread, and they would make the same sort of soup, and they would literally like mix the soups together sometimes, so that it was almost like its own sort of sacramental image, like vegetable soup, right? So uh -huh. that it was like one soup, 
right? One body, one cup. And then, you know, they would divide out, the men and women would divide out and they would do foot washing. And then they would go up into the church and, and have communion. Wow. And we had a new pastor who came. He would sort of display historic images related to like the passion of Jesus or even the Eucharist. So like some of them were Catholic images, but I didn't, or <laughs> pre-Reformation images, that, but I didn't know that. But, and it was an attempt to, and it worked to instill a kind of piety around, around communion. So um, that was recognizable to me in some way. And I think there was a piece that, that of the sort of Catholic world that was aesthetically pleasing, right? The sort of visuals were um, naturally appealing. I dated a girl in high school who was Episcopalian. Um, oh, I invited her to come to. I invited her to come to my church. It never occurred to me to go to her church, which oh. maybe just shows that I was not like a very sensitive person. Aww. But I'm sure that she. Uh, I mean. I'm sure if she found out, like, I was an Episcopal priest and, like, now running this old Episcopal institution, it it would probably be rather strange to her. But, yeah, so I, I, I came in in college and stayed, and the church that I joined was a kind of slightly charismatically inflected Anglican church. The first book I was given by somebody at the church, and he was the pastoral musician, and he was also the research librarian at Wheaton College. And he was an amazing, amazing man, John Fawcett. First book he gave me was Schmemann's The Eucharist, which is like not maybe what you'd expect at like a charismatic Anglican church, you know, as the and you're first like 18, introduction. 19 years old. I'm 17. I was really young when I started. I oh. turned 17 my Feb in February of my senior year of high school. So oh, I had been 17 gosh. for six months when I started college. So I was really young. So I was drawn to Catholic Anglicanism mm -hmm. from the beginning, though I, I wouldn't have known how to talk about it then, but that's, that's certainly the case. So, and I think that I was also inclined towards ecumenism as well. I was an English major. I was going to go get a PhD and try to teach English at a college. And it was it was a class, church history class with Mark Knoll that changed my trajectory there. So that plus, I think, Anglicanism sort of turned me towards theology. So I applied to master's programs in theology. The only one I applied to that was also a seminary was Duke. And that's where I ended up going, not because it was a seminary, but because actually, I remember one of the things that really struck me when we visited Amy Laura Hall, one of the ethics professors, she asked me if we had met with our pastor or our priest to pray about where I should go to school. And it like warmed my heart. <laughs> I felt my heart strangely warmed in a Methodist sort of way. And so I ended up there and ended up meeting the Bishop of Dallas and starting down the ordination track. But I was exposed to ecumenical theology at Duke in a really big way. One of my teachers, Jeffrey Wainwright, who chaired the Methodist Catholic International Dialogue for a long time, was a good friend of Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict. Rest in peace, Jeffrey. That's right. Rest in peace, Jeffrey. But he introduced me to Don Bolin, who at that point worked for the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity. He's now the Bishop of Regina in Saskatchewan, Canadian bishop. 
And that's how I got connected with the Anglican Center in Rome and how I got connected to Christopher before he was, had even come to the Living Church. Oh, okay, okay. So it turns out that Christopher and I probably went to Rome four times together. Yeah, and I you think. and I met on one of those trips, on the on the last trip. That's right. Is that is that the first time we actually met in person? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and we spent almost two weeks, uh, a group of us, um, a group of us in Rome. So I think two of the features, uh, um, or two aspects of the Living Church's mission that are really central to it, um, that is representing the sort of Catholic end of Anglicanism, at least historically, and also concerned with ecumenism. So that overlap, I think, made this affinity with the Living Church pretty obvious. And then the fact that Christopher and I were already friends, and then he took this job, and we also had been at the very beginning, I think he was at the very beginning of Covenant when it was an independent blog, but I was one of the first writers that joined. Have so, you really been writing for I, the Living Church for that long? Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize somehow I wasn't doing the math in my head. I have like three or four questions that are blooming in my mind from the things that you said. I keep imagining your upbringing and all of these evangelical roots and the first kind of worship you experienced where all the best of evangelicalism was leading up to this powerful and reverent celebration of the Eucharist. The Living Church styles itself as, and, and really is, for Catholics and for evangelicals both. This is one of the things we're trying to hold together here in the Anglican Communion and in the Episcopal Church. You're a very Catholic Anglican. What are some elements of being evangelical that you never want to let go of, that you never want to see go? Maybe I'll preface this by saying that I know that for people who were raised in some sort of evangelical world and become Anglican, I think for some people that transition is one that is born out of hurt or anger or frustration, and thus Anglicanism you know, provides some resolution and solution to some of those problems. That was never really my experience. So I wasn't looking to leave, right? Somebody invited me and it was like, I mean, I would sort of jokingly say it was like I got born again, again, because that was the experience of it. It wasn't like rejection. It was just sort of like opening and widening. And I mean, I, I was going to say I like to joke, but I don't think it's a joke. I mean, I think former evangelicals make such great Anglicans. Obviously, there are aspects of evangelicalism that one sort of needs to set aside in order to be an Anglican. So, I mean, embracing, you know, uh, bishops, priests, and deacons, like you read Ignatius' letters about the Eucharist and about the bishop, and it didn't take long to be like, well, Ignatius knew uh, Polycarp, who knew the Apostle John. If he's talking about bishops in this way, this must just be like from the beginning. Mm. And I think I sort of received that in maybe an overly, like a slightly naive way. But there, but I think that was actually born out of more like an evangelical piety that I, I mean, it was the similar sort of posture about the scriptures, right? That yeah, this is I the mean, word of God. You can't get a fresher revival or greater zeal than the day of Pentecost. And from the day of Pentecost, the Apostle John to Polycarp to Irenaeus, I mean, this is a very short progression 
And so it it's a very logical conclusion to say that one of the results of the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit was the order of the leaders of the church. It was an org chart. <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah. yeah, I think there's a very logical relationship there. Yeah. The burden of proof is on me to disagree with Irenaeus, you know, especially if this seems like the consensus of early Christian minds, then then who am I? Which is, I guess, also, I, I guess, a kind of Catholic impulse as well. Mm -hmm. That is to say that you you tend to think that the tradition that the tradition is reliable. Tradition and scripture are not the same thing, but they both, I mean, scripture has a peculiar kind of weight of authority and thus an obligation to submit and receive it. But the tradition, I think, the tradition has a similar sort of like power. I mean, even the question, the ordination question, like after you're asked, do you believe the Holy Scriptures to be the Word of God and contain everything necessary for salvation, right, in the ordination, right, which as a former evangelical, it's like, that's a pretty recognizably evangelical way of speaking, mm -hmm. right? And then it says, will you be loyal to the doctrine, discipline, and worship of Christ as this church has received it? There is a kind of collection, a deposit that has been passed down and received that's not to say that, you know, it's just a sort of wooden recapitulation or just parroting of the past. In Rowan Williams, in his second address to the Lambeth Conference in 1998, I think, or 2008, 2008, he has this whole discussion of tradition, and he uses the language, the non-technical language of recognizability, which I think is really, really helpful. That So that... What, is, um, what does that mean? So, for instance, that how people worship liturgically in 2023 is not going to be in any way look just like what was happening in, you know, 1473, but but it would be recognizable to them. Ah, I see. Mm -hmm. How people are going to describe the person of Jesus mm -hmm. in 2023 and 1473 might not mm -hmm. be identical, but if it's not recognizable, then that's that's deeply problematic. The tradition has has tended to say, like, you know, George Limbeck here, the nature of doctrine. There are some sentences that are not permitted. Mm -hmm. One sentence like that is like, Jesus is not Lord. This is not mm -hmm. a sentence that's permitted. There was a time when Jesus was not. This is also a sentence and a sort of reality that that can't be claimed. Mm. But you know, it's I think it's pretty hard to describe Jesus and Christology without the word incarnation. And you know, homoousios is is pretty foundational, and you might at some point you're probably going to have to introduce the word substance. If if listeners have not noticed by now, Father Olver is a theologian. How are you, the publisher and executive director of a magazine? What the heck? What are you doing, Matthew? How did this specific call translate? <laughs> it's funny. I mean, when Christopher stepped down. I thought, wow, this is this is you know going to be a pretty important decision about who takes this role, because the Living Church has a pretty important role in the Episcopal Church in the Communion. But I, I did not have any thought of applying for it. But I I did have a couple people, including my wife, and then some other friends who were like, "You're going to apply for this, right?" And I was like, "Really?" I started my PhD when I was 33, which is not like 
and my kids are in elementary school, right? Like not the ideal time to do that. But coming out of graduate school, I had had a, a pretty significant research agenda. And I really was able to bring that to a conclusion. I'm now just trying to finish the manuscript on my, my big book on the origin of the Roman canon. And so that to say, it felt like maybe I had come to maybe a transition point uh, that I hadn't, I wasn't really thinking about it in that way. But, but then I think when this, this possibility arose, I thought, huh, well, maybe this, maybe this does make some sense. I think there's also ways in which, you know, sometimes the unexpected turns out to maybe is the thing that is what God has for you and that maybe actually makes sense, but it wouldn't have made sense. It's not the sort of thing I was imagining until the possibility arose. So I think, too, that as I started to think about it, you know, the fact that we do a lot of writing and publishing, that this place is um, concerned with theology, with raising up leaders with equipping people. This is not disconnected to being a priest or being a seminary professor. I mean, the overlap between those is pretty significant. And there's lots of really significant challenges that are facing the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion. And I think that another aspect of what drew me to this is that it seemed like God was maybe giving me an opportunity to put my hand to the plow and do some hmm. small part of working for, you know, health and growth and those sorts of things in those larger fields. And I think of the 17 years that you spent writing for the Living Church and writing and thinking and caring about all these yeah. things. And so, yeah, to get in the dirt, as it were, and and do some of the stuff that you've been caring about and thinking about and writing about for so many years has got to be really interesting and also exciting. Yeah, it really is. Hey there, podcast listener. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you probably know that The Living Church is not just a podcast. Oh no, my friend. TLC is a publishing ministry with a unique magazine, independent church news reporting, a stellar theology blog, resources for parish ministry, many of them free. I could go on. Stop me now. Stop me now. We're rooted in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, but we have a big heart for the unity of all God's people. You know that I love that you're here, but I don't want you to just stay in the podcast space and miss out on other ways our ministry might serve you. You can go to livingchurch.org and see what all TLC offers. How can we serve you today? One way we might serve you is coming up in September. We're hosting an event with an amazing community of friends at All Souls Episcopal Church in Oklahoma City, a conference called The Human Pilgrimage. What does it mean to be human? How do we live fully as creatures loved, limited, and liberated by God? Join The Living Church September 26th to 28th in Oklahoma City and be refreshed by three days of world-class keynotes, friendship, and meditation on who we are as creatures in Christ. Right now, you also get 15% off all tickets with the promo code EARLYBIRD. Go to livingchurch.org forward slash events for more information and to buy your tickets. And I hope to see you there. I'm curious, you're, now you're grinning. I'm, I'm curious, <laughs> like, what's behind that smile? You know, what are the things that you're 
really excited about, and I would guess, I'm going to combine another question here, and I would guess that some of those things are also related to the future of the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, which a lot of people yeah. worry about and, and are concerned about and are praying about or are giving up on, you know? So what are you most excited about in this constellation of, of work and yeah. prayer? Well, one of the words I mentioned before, you know, related to ordained ministry is the task of um, stewarding and preserving something. And I, I actually have been thinking about this from a couple of different vantage points over this past year. So part, in part of my sabbatical, I uh, I did an, uh, some traveling. Uh, one of those trips, Nathan Jennings and I were in England together working on our book on that we're writing for seminarians and for parish study groups about, it's called Turning Points in Prayer Book History, Making Sense of the American Tradition. And mm. at the end of that trip, I stayed on and went to Northern Italy to visit some places uh, related to my book. Also, you know, Northern Italy, not bad, great place to be, especially if I had some funding, which I did. How much did you spend on coffee? I spent an appropriate amount, given that I was in Italy. <laughs> okay. Okay. He had a per diem. He spent the right amount. Yes. Anyway, so then you so were in Northern, Northern Italy. Italy. And one of the, the place that I had most, there were two places that I really, really wanted to visit. One was Ravenna, because there are two different churches there that depict the figures of Abel and Abraham and Melchizedek together. And those three figures are mentioned together in the Roman canon, the text that I've been working on for the past like decade. And then I also really wanted to visit in Milan to visit Ambrose's church. Ambrose is the earliest witness to the Roman canon. He quotes five paragraphs of it in his mystagogical catechesis that he writes for those newly baptized adults that he's teaching after the Easter vigil. And he quotes it, which is amazing. So there's St. Ambrose's church. There is a mosaic there that is that is of Ambrose that scholars are pretty certain was done from life. That is, it was, it, it was wow. he sort of modeled for it. And one of the reasons cool. they think this is because he looks sort of funny in the mosaic. Like he has big ears and they're sort of like sticking out and not symmetrical. And this is sort of atypical in mosaics. You tend to, uh, you know, you have a stylized or slightly have like an, an idealized, idealized version. And the fact that yeah. he looks is not idealized, and it's pretty certain that it comes from the end of the fourth century. So, so I really wanted to see that. And I also really wanted to visit the baptismal font where they're pretty certain that, that Ambrose baptized Augustine. So it's a huge octagonal font. There's actually a quotation in one of the stones from Ambrose about octagonal fonts. So people actually wonder if this was the first octagonal font that had been built and built at Ambrose's direction and where Augustine would have been baptized. And like in the Didache, there is flowing water. So there's a path coming in so that living water can be there. So you're baptizing and moving living water. And it was just amazing. So I, I brought with me, I'm so nerdy. I, I like found the passage from Confessions where Augustine described his baptism. So I went there and I like read it and I read some of Ambrose while I was there. While most of the other tourists were like throwing pennies in and taking selfies, I was I was reading the confessions. 
You're standing there reading Augustine and yeah, crying. Yeah, so I was trying to keep it together. But all this to say, one of the things that really struck me in a way that, in a conscious way that I had never thought about before, was all the people stretching back from me to when these structures were built who were involved in preserving it so that I could be there. This, this reality just kept recurring to me, and it was especially in Ravenna, because there are, I think there are seven structures that preserve probably the height of both Western and Byzantine mosaics anywhere in the world. I spent the whole day in Ravenna visiting all those sites, walking to them. I decided to make it a pilgrimage, including the one all the way out in Classe, which is like seven kilometers away, I think. So I just made, I prayed as I walked and made this my, made this my pilgrimage. And at the last place, I met this art historian who looked like he, you know, could have been in Green Day, like half his head was shaved and it was like dyed green. And it turns out he was a PhD student from the University of Bologna who was training both in the history of mosaics and in making them. And he told me that Ravenna in the fifth century would have had between 70 and 80 churches that would have been mosaics like that. Ravenna was the capital of the empire at that time, but it struck me, right, think how many people had to have said, you know what makes the most sense for us to keep building churches like this? Like, this just seems like the obvious thing to do, right? <laughs> like, that in itself is remarkable, mm. which is to say they thought, we need to build beautiful temples where the God of Jesus Christ is worshiped. Well, this is part of this is part of that recognizability piece, too, because you said that this guy who is this historian and is and is helping to create new mosaics looks like he could be a member of Green Day. So that's a difference. But the recognizability is there. I mean, Augustine or St. Paul, you know, could probably come in and say, Oh, yes, this is where the sacraments are celebrated. Yeah. This is, you know, and and hey, here's the guy who does the mosaics. Well, he looks kind of weird, but he too hath the spirit yeah. of the Lord, you know? Yeah, I mean, so, mm -hmm. you know, so that last church in Classe is where Abel, Abraham, and Melchizedek are depicted in the same mosaic. They're all around an altar, and they're all making an offering together, and it's literally directly adjacent to the altar. And so he was telling me, this, this guy that I met, that... So the, the capital of the empire, that part of the empire, moved from Milan to Ravenna about 10 years after Ambrose died. And he's like, you know, they would have brought Ambrose's library from Milan to Ravenna because it's now the capital. And so it needed to be in an important place and preserved. And he's like, and they would have brought it right over there. And he like points to the building next door where the library was would have been located. And he's like, so they would have had Ambrose's texts. Also, the, the apse in San Apollinaria and Classe is this amazing, it's, it's basically stars with a cross in the center and the face of Jesus where the cross, the two beams of the cross intersect. And then there are three lambs depicted. And he's like, this is a depiction of the transfiguration. This actually is from Ambrose's commentary on the Gospel of Luke, where he's talking about the transfiguration. And I was like, what? That is a very long answer, but a way of getting at um, one of the things that drew me to the living church is that this is a vocation of preservation, of preserving something that is really singular and important 
um, in the life of the Episcopal Church. And it's singular for a number of reasons. I think one of them is it is a preservation of a, a certain aspect of the Episcopal Church's life. It's sort of Catholic heritage. So it intentionally is wanting to keep that voice present, but in a sort of winsome and generous way. It is preserving a vocation to encourage and describe the life of the Episcopal Church. And, and I think both mm -hmm. of those things together. So it's not, you know, we have a long history mm -hmm. of reporting and covering the Episcopal Church. So anybody who wants to write the history of the Episcopal Church, you have to consult the pages of the Living Church. Because the Living Church, I think, has seen part of its vocation is precisely that, is to document the history of the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, but more specifically, the Episcopal Church. But it, it also sees its call to encourage and build it up, right? So, I mean, we've been publishing a series of stories about growing churches because, you know, one of the main stories in American Christianity in general, and certainly in mainline churches, is decline and, and a decrease mm -hmm. in numbers. But there are, there are churches that are growing, and there are churches that are vibrant, and it's important to tell those stories, too. So for General Convention, you know, the Living Church books, one of the volumes that it will premiere there or soon before that is a collection of these stories about growing churches, right? So this is, mm -hmm. this is I think, yeah. kind of, again, so central to the kinds of things that the Living Church um, intends to do. So I think this, this vocation of preservation was really appealing. I think another piece was the, you know, covenant is a sort of interesting feature of the living church. That's also recent, relatively, in its history. That's our blog, if people don't know about it. So it's covenant.livingchurch.org. And we have, I mean, we have some of the most amazing theological and pastoral minds working on this blog and we you know put out five new posts a week i just think a lot of people not enough people know yeah. about it so i just wanted to give a shout out for no for the absolutely blog. i mean it is interesting though people do know about it i mean when i was in england i was running into people and i introduced myself and they're like oh you write for covenant <laughs> and these were people who were teaching at universities theologians yeah oh yeah i saw the list of i saw the list of our new writers and sort of my eyes yeah. goggled I mean, a little bit we have already an amazing list i mean let me just name some names that are joining covenant writers now yeah, or in the drop. next couple of months so stephen andrews who's the uh principal of wycliffe, wycliffe college in uh, toronto um shady uh, anis who is an egyptian uh the son of mountaineer anis who was the um the bishop anglican bishop but um, his son is a Cambridge scholar and theologian. Uh, a couple of my former students, Tyler Bean and Sam Cripps, Kate Sonderager, one of the most important living theologians right now in the Anglican Communion. We have a number of people now joining us from parts of the Communion who have never written for Covenant. Chris Holmes, who teaches in New Zealand, is joining us. Terry Wong, who is a priest in Singapore, is joining us. Emma Innocent, who's the Bishop of Kensington. So, I mean, that's just a little smattering. But, and I mean, if you yeah. go and look, we already have a really interesting collection of people. So another, another aspect of the job that drew me was thinking about how the covenant writers can serve 
the Episcopal Church beyond just writing, but in speaking as well. So one of the things that I love, have loved about the Living Church over the last decade or so is that some of my best interpersonal times have been Living Church events. One of them was over my sabbatical. We met at All Souls in Oklahoma City. And I just, I saw how much people just so appreciated being together. Yeah. I'm not being light when I say there's a lot of love in the room at a living church gathering. I mean, you, you, it's almost, some people have described like, oh, it was like a family reunion or I made so many new friends. I mean, there's like hugging people love being there in just a really special way. You know, the word like Christian fellowship is used a lot, you know, and I think we could Mm -hmm. sort of maybe overused for some that, you know, it's sort of lost its meaning, but you know, lots of people, most Episcopal priests, most of them are working on their own and it's hard and it's lonely. Right. Going somewhere. I mean, just being with other people, talking to them, hearing stories is really encouraging. I mean, it may be the like shot in the arm that like gives them a boost for the next six months, just that fellowship. And then, you know, it turns out the conference itself maybe has something that is really helpful for them or insightful or encouraging, or it gives them something about their prayer life. And then they're able, you know, they make an adjustment in their own sort of devotional life. And that ends up being a huge, you know, sort of gift and, strengthening or empowering for them for their ministry. So I'd love to see more local gatherings, conferences that we could put on, even just that are, you know, one day sorts of things. So you could do something in Florida that people could drive to. So, you know, fitting it into your life is not as complicated as like traveling across the country. And it it's it's like a smaller deal to make it happen. But we have people spread all over the country who can do this, you know? And so I think that I'd love to see, I'd love to try to figure out if we can encourage and equip more widely in sort of, you know, smaller things that are also easier for for people around the church to participate in. Well, if you guys who are listening are not sold yet on the ministries of the Living Church, we're trying really hard over here. (laughs) Shameless plugs. Shameless plugs. But we're really happy. I'm really happy to have you on board Matthew, I think this is going to be a lovely season in the life of the Living Church. I've been talking today to the Reverend Dr. Matthew Olver, who's the new executive director of the Living Church. Matthew, thank you so much for chatting today. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. In two weeks, what does a priest have in common with Ted Lasso? We'll head to Wales, where we'll hear an inspiring church turnaround story from a small town on the edge of the Brecon Beacons. And you'll even learn a little Welsh. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Remember, if you'd like to support the podcast and help us to make all those little upgrades, you can do that in the show notes today. Peace.